first day of school, my students are coming in and I'm, you know, bouncing around like a, a ping pong ball. And one boy comes in and he's like holding his stomach and he's like, oh, I feel really nervous. I'm like, oh, you're fine. Just here's your desk. Throws up all over my shoes. And I send him to the nurse, but I didn't have nurse passes because I hadn't thought that far ahead. Oh, yeah. So I give him a trash can. He goes and comes back a few minutes later and he's like, you didn't give me a pass. She sent me back. And I'm like, what do you mean she sent you back? You just threw up on my feet. We're about to make a harsh shift from talking about funny vomit stories to something a little darker, but bear with me because it's all going to make sense for the theme of this week's episode. Viktor Frankl is one of the most well-known psychiatrists in history, in part because of his founding of logotherapy and his contributions to existential analysis, but largely in part because Viktor Frankl was a victim of concentration camps. He spent three years in four different concentration camps, and over that time, he lost his father, his brother, his mother, and his wife. In his book, Man's Search for Meaning, he describes heinous and terrible conditions and experiences of not only himself, but those around him. Imagine for a moment being a psychiatrist and trying to understand and make sense of what was happening in the concentration camps. And in his text, he describes every day, every hour, offer the opportunity to make a decision. A decision which determined whether you would or would not submit to those powers which threatened to rob you of your very self, your inner freedom which determined whether or not you would become the plaything of circumstance, renouncing freedom and dignity to become molded into the form of the typical inmate. Through this entire process, he focused not only on the importance of meaning, but the power of choice, of recognizing out of all the things beyond his control, what were the things within his control, and how could he still make sense of one of the most heinous experiences in human history. Viktor Frankl's experience speaks to the power of how focusing on our choices, our actions, our behaviors might be the key factor in not just surviving life, but thriving as well. Though none of our experiences can come close to the experience of a concentration camp, there's much to be learned from the power of choice and focusing on our inward decision-making. And as we launch into the start of another academic year, that's the space that I want to begin with. On this episode of Educator Happy Hour, we're going to do a deep dive in the influence of choice and internal locus of control. And I want to acknowledge that you had endless choices you could have made today, but I thank you for making this choice to listen to this week's episode to invest in yourself and your choices moving forward. Cheers to the kickoff of season two of Educator Happy Hour. Educator Happy Hour is brought to you by TYS Speakers. Are you looking to inspire your students or staff to not only motivate their thinking, but their actions in school and beyond? Then check out TYS Speakers. TYS Speakers is a group of carefully vetted speakers and professional development leaders whose messages are engaging, evidence-based, and life-changing. Browse the speakers and watch preview videos at tysspeakers.com. What is up, Happy Hour Hodgepodge? It's been so long since we've connected in this space, and I've taken a long and much-needed summer break, as I'm sure, or at least I'm hoping, you have too. Yet my summer has not been without work. Now, many of you are like, dude, weren't you going to release the first episode a while ago? Yeah, that was my intention, but I have had quite a lot of activity going on, not only on the family front and trying to enjoy my summer, but on the work front as well. Personal updates coming your way. Get ready. I have been on the move delivering professional development keynotes all summer. Among the many different schools I've worked with, shout out to places like Sevilla Elementary in Phoenix and Southwest Arkansas Education Co-op, Michigan Association of Administrators of Special Education, Jefferson County Schools, East Central Ohio Education Services, Kinder Ranch, Texas. Many, many go on. I have had a blast getting to help launch a lot of schools into the new year. And additionally, I've also released a new book. Oh my gosh, I am so excited to have this finally out in the world that my new book, Illuminate the Way, A School Leader's Guide to Reducing and Addressing Educator Burnout is out there in the world. So if you are a school leader or know a school leader or just want to be a school influencer and really do a deep dive into the science of well-being and what actually is going to make an impact beyond just self-care, then please check it out. Your support, whether it is purchasing the book, leaving a review, spreading the word means the world to me. And lastly, 
I don't want to give away too much, but we have some awesome changes coming your way to Educator Happy Hour. I will tell you soon that we're going to be making some shifts in such a positive way to improve the quality, the impact, and the overall vibe of this show. But this week, to launch into season two, I want to do a deep dive into the idea of control. Let's be honest, there is so much out of our control in education right now. Our salary scales, the curriculum we teach, the politics of social media, the legislative decisions that it can feel very easy to get stuck down into powerlessness. And yet we know that how you frame your sense of control, your internal locus of control is huge on its impact of your well-being, your efficacy, and your impact. And in this week's episode, I get to tap into the brilliant brain of someone who has done this masterfully in her career as an educator. Michelle Emerson taught second and fourth grade for seven years and now supports teachers around the world by presenting PD, creating digital teacher resources, and producing educational videos. She recently published first class teaching 10 lessons you don't learn in college to support new teachers as they transition from college to the classroom. And this was actually my first introduction to Michelle and getting a chance to review her book. And I'm going to tell you, it is an amazing book. And she's going to spend a little bit of time getting a chance to share not only her insights on being a new teacher and how to transition in education, but lessons we all can learn about in the difficult, crappy, terrible moments when people are vomiting all over the place and we have no idea what we're doing. How do we still refocus our control? So it's time to introduce Michelle Emerson to Educator Happy Hour. Welcome to Educator Happy Hour, Michelle. I am so geeked to get a chance to chat with you, especially as you're coming off of a, a pretty awesome vacation. Where did you go? Tell, give us a little insight. Where, where's the world of Michelle right now? Well, first of all, I'm so happy to be here and get to talk with you. So my husband and I recently went to, we flew into Krakow, Poland. We drove from there to Auschwitz and did a tour. And then we drove to Olomouc, which is in the Czech Mm. Republic. And then we drove to Prague in the Czech Republic, all of which were phenomenal. And we survived driving in Europe for the first time. So I consider (laughs) that a success. (laughs) Now, I imagine that would be pretty terrifying to try to do entirely on your own. Uh, There are so many dimensions of your world that I think are fascinating that um, I'm excited to to share with our audience if if they aren't somehow familiar with your work. Um, One of my questions to lead things off and get to know you a little bit more is, what has been your best classroom management technique and why is it destroying your students in arm wrestling? Because <laughs> you are a beast of a human being. Like I've been following you for a while and, and, and you know, you, you post a lot about just your, your efforts to try to be in great health. Um, but you don't really realize someone's a beast until you see their like powerlifting and you were posting about your powerlifting. <laughs> I'm like, dang, she could probably just like flex at a student and get them to, to conform or adjust. So, um, why, why did you dive into fitness so hard? Not just like it, like lightly, but like you, you go hard. Tell us, tell us about that journey. You completely caught me off guard with the arm wrestling (laughs) comment, but it's funny because it is very on point. And I will say you get a lot of respect, especially from like the boys that are, you know, Mm. they think they're like tough and you're like, oh yeah, no, 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 watch this. (laughs) So in terms of fitness, it's always been a big part of my life growing up. I did Taekwondo. I played lacrosse, Mm. but when I got into high school, I started running and that became my Mm. identity. And going into college, I was aiming to graduate a year early. So I didn't have time to dedicate to joining like the track team where you had practices at certain times. So I got into marathon running. And at the time, I like loved just it. Like, I, I just decided to dabble in marathon running. is just kind of you an know, aside. <laughs> in hindsight, it was not the best choice because I was a sprinter in high school. So oh, why I thought I'd be yeah. a good marathon runner beyond me. But it was something I could do very independently. And being the obsessive personality that I am, I thought I'm going to run a marathon in every state. (laughs) I did five and then ended up fracturing my shin because I was doing too much. And I realized running just wasn't my jam. It was very hard Mm. on my body. Mm. And my husband at the time we were dating, but we started going to the gym together and we would walk in, I'd go to the treadmill and he'd go lift weights and we lived these separate workout lives. (laughs) But slowly he started to get me into lifting weights and I just found it so empowering, especially Mm. as a female. And I fell in love with it. And the more I did it, the more I loved it. And here we are, I think now at this point, I've been lifting off and on for maybe six years and I love it so much more now than when I started. 
And that's how I know I'm doing the right thing. Like my passion yeah. for it has only grown. So now I compete in powerlifting. Um, I actually compete at the national level and I've got some, some big goals in mind for powerlifting, but that is my kind of other outlet for stress, but also yeah. empowerment and passion outside of education. Yeah, for sure. And that actually kind of segues one of the questions we often ask our guests is like when you are stressed or when you are having a challenging or overwhelming day, what is your drink or your decompressor of choice? So in addition <laughs> to just like beasting out and lifting and throwing heavy things, um, what else do you do to decompress? I will say that is the bulk of it. Yeah. Um, and drinking energy drinks <laughs> because <laughs> I need the caffeine. Um, I don't even want to admit how much caffeine I have on a daily basis. So when people ask where my energy comes from, I'm like, it's a can. But other than working out and drinking energy drinks, I would say I do enjoy just like going for a walk and specifically hmm. without AirPods and like having that stimulation, I love to be able to just walk and give my brain a break. Mm. And sometimes I do think and kind of go down rabbit holes, but sometimes I'm literally just like counting the sidewalk steps as I go. Mm. And I try to to give my chance, uh, my brain a chance to kind of decompress and relax because I don't think we do that enough. Yeah, that's that's a big idea around, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of walking as well, but a lot of our activities that we have as decompressors or hobbies, we end up filling with other stimuli. And mm -hmm. I'm one of those people who like, I have to really set firm boundaries sometimes of like, I'm going to go on a walk and I'm not going to bring my phone or I'm not going to try to listen to a podcast. Yeah. And sometimes it's it's good to have those just, you know, mindless things we can decompress around. But other times it's like, no, it's good to just let my brain have something like unstructured to do. And that's often where I have my best ideas or insights or reflections. And um, I don't think we do that enough, in part because we have exposure to all sorts of stimuli whenever we want to. Uh, that's awesome. So um, one of the things that really drew me into your work beyond just like the, the content that you have been producing for a long time um, was your book that just launched recently. For those who are unfamiliar, it is called First Class Teaching, 10 Lessons You Don't Learn in College. Um, and first of all, I loved it because there's so much good wordplay. Like your, your pun game <laughs> is very strong. And as a father who loves a good dad joke, um, just like your chapter <laughs> titles, like I was really into it. But the other thing I really loved and admired about it was um, you kind of come from this place of like sharing your fail stories of your first year yeah. <laughs> or years teaching and how to learn from it. And there's a lot of resources for new teachers. And, you know, there's like Harry Wong has his book. And I always mm -hmm. struggled to read it because my instructional coaches just kept saying Harry Wong. And I had the immature brain of like, I can't get past that part. Uh, but a lot <laughs> of them are more like, you know, they almost feel like the type of content that someone would hear in an undergraduate course of like, you have to do this and you have to do this and then everything will be okay. But you come from this very humble and authentic place of like, hey, here's where I went horribly wrong. And here's how you can learn from that so that you don't make these mistakes or you don't have these moments. Um, so if you could to kind of kick it off, what what is your favorite fail story that you remember? And what did you gain or learn from that experience? Oh, geez. Yeah. So writing that book was interesting because as much as we don't want to admit our failures, a lot <laughs> yeah. of mine are already available online because <laughs> I started documenting my journey as a teacher during mm. my, well, technically my first year of teaching is when I started posting on Instagram, but then mm. more specifically on YouTube during my third year of teaching. So I have been very open and vulnerable the entire time. So I'm like, yeah. okay, what do I have to lose? So <laughs> Honestly, it's my first day of teaching story, which I mm. kick off the introduction with that, as well as there is a whole later chapter dedicated because, of course, it was too much for just one <laughs> story. <laughs> but essentially, I got hired, and most teachers know that hiring process is such a whirlwind, and you're being uh. introduced to people, and you're like shaking their hand and nodding <laughs> your head and smiling, and you're like, I don't even know what your name is. You just told me, and I already forgot. <laughs> right. And unfortunately, that happened with me with the administration. So I got hired. I'd interviewed with them. And I, I vaguely remembered you know, their faces. I knew their names, but it was that connection of the <laughs> yeah. name to the face. And so I'm in my classroom starting to set up and I, someone walks in my room, they're like, Hey, do you need anything? And I'm like, or they're like, how are you doing? Oh, I, you know, I feel like I have no idea what I'm doing, but thanks. <laughs> and then I realized that was my assistant principal who had just popped in my room. And I'm like, I am, I feel so embarrassed. And then 
I started to have where the front office was pulling kids from my class because the community or like the families were learning that I was a first year teacher and they didn't mm. want me as their child's teacher, which I think a lot of new teachers experience. Yeah, it's for sure. Not a good feeling. But at the same time, you get it because you yeah. also are like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, take but, all the kids out. I don't want like give me like two right. kids and I'll start there. <laughs> yes, that sounds good. I don't I don't want to be outnumbered. Right. So that was embarrassing just to deal mm. with. And then fast forward to the first day of school, my students are coming in and I'm, you know, bouncing around like a, a ping pong ball. And one boy comes in and he's like holding his stomach and he's like, oh, I feel really nervous. I'm like, oh, you're fine. Just here's your desk. Throws up all over my shoes. Oh. And I send him to the nurse, but I didn't have nurse passes because I hadn't thought that far ahead. Oh, yeah. So I yeah. give him a trash can. He goes and comes back a few minutes later and he's like, You didn't give me a pass. She sent me back. And I'm like, What do you mean she sent you back? You just threw up on my feet. It's like, <laughs> so isn't, I had to isn't think, the pail of vomit the pass? Like, couldn't couldn't she be like, Oh, exactly. no, you're really- <laughs> Exactly. Like, you had a trash can. I think we're good. But he came back. I had to then. Then call her, explain the situation. And then by the time that was done, I had to take my students to art, which thank goodness, because I needed a breather. Mm. And my students line up and all of a sudden I go, I don't know where the art room is. I never got a tour of the school. I have no idea where I'm taking these small children who are now instilling all their faith in me as we walk down the hallway. (laughs) So I'm thinking back to all the hallways I've walked down. I'm like, I remember seeing one where like it said art on the little placard. So I take them there, but the room is dark and there are, there's Mm. no art supplies. And I'm standing outside this room that says art and there's nothing. And thankfully another teacher, I think saw the panic on my face and informed me the art room had been moved this year out to the portables which I never would have found on my own because I was right. not venturing outside of the school building. <laughs> yeah. So that was my first day of teaching. The students all made it home safely. I call that a win, but yeah. I figured from there it couldn't get any worse. <laughs> yeah. No, it really is like the the horror stories you kind of like jam-packed into one day, which uh, I'm sure is terrifying, yeah. but also kind of like like you said, like we're at rock bottom. It almost feels like an exactly. So like we can only go up from here. Um, I yep. think that it, that is so relevant into not only new teachers and new educators, but kind of the bigger picture of this conversation I want to have with you is around when things seem like really beyond your control or life is happening Mm -hmm. to us in a way that we don't really want it to happen. Like, how do we move forward? And so kind of just opening up generally, what were some of the, the, the thoughts or the things you did in not only that first day, but that first year that you think allowed you to find some comfort or stability or action amidst the chaos and the unexpected? It's funny when you mention lack of control and feeling like life is happening to you, because I feel like that is the whole pandemic in summary. And it goes to show you that even if you're not a new teacher, you just never know what could happen. (laughs) You know, what's the meatball coming down the pipeline, if you will. (laughs) So have you ever read the book, Man's Search for Meeting by Victor E. Frankel? Oh, yeah. yeah. So I'm a big quote nerd. And this goes back to when I was in high school, I kept a notebook where I would handwrite quotes that I loved. And (laughs) when I had times where I was struggling, I would look through for a relevant quote. And then that Mm. would kind of become my like mantra for as long as I needed it. And I still do that. I now have gone digital. So I have a note in my notes app where I just keep reminders, whether it's quotes or little sayings. And when I have those times that I'm struggling, I will look back on them. Hmm. So one of my favorite quotes from that book, Man's Search for Meaning, is no matter the circumstance, you always have the last of the human freedoms to choose your attitude. And that is something that I feel like just applies to so many areas of life, but especially teaching. When you feel like you're dealing with these problems that are out of your control, whether it's assessments you have to give, district policies that are in place that you don't agree with, a curriculum you have to teach with fidelity, everyone's favorite word, (laughs) and you know it's not serving your students. First of all, ask yourself, is there something I can do to change the situation? Because even though you can't control all of it, you may be able to take certain steps of action in order Mm. to make the situation better. So for example, one district I taught in, we had a curriculum that we had to teach with fidelity. Mm. And I knew that it was not meeting all of my students' needs. And so Mm. I kind of had this moment where I realized 
I have to teach that curriculum, but I can teach it my way. And the Mm. way that I deliver that curriculum to my students can make a big difference. So that is something within my control that can positively impact the situation. But there will be moments where you you don't feel like you have any control and yeah. that can be hard. That's where I, I come back to my attitude of just choosing to focus, as cheesy as it sounds, on the positive <laughs> as opposed to the negative. Not in a like toxic positivity way, but yeah. knowing that negativity bias exists where we tend to focus more on the negative than the positive. And so by making that small shift, it can have a big impact. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up toxic positivity. That's it's come up a, a couple times within these many episodes of it, it's almost like we have to give that little asterisk around yes. the idea of like shifting our mindset and our attitude, which is it's it's kind of sad that like we have to, but I think that's a, a part of the culture in this this pendulum swing of, you know, it isn't just all up to an individual to like pull up their bootstraps and ignore all the negativity around them, but Mm-hmm. Still not trying to discredit the power of our mindsets and our outlooks and what we look towards. And curriculum is one of those spaces that I think is is really fascinating because that is a spot where there is a lot of stuff beyond our control. And there's also some opportunity, often more than we think, to try to tweak things. Um, and that I think about like my, some of my biggest frustrations as an educator have been like teaching content I'm not excited about or trying to mm-hmm. focus in a certain strategy that I don't really like. And knowing when to just accept that and knowing when to shift and try what I want to is a very sticky experience, but I think is really important. So I would love to kind of explore in that realm a little bit of there are certain things that like we literally cannot change and can't control. And there are these moments when we have more control than we might think. How the frick do we learn the difference? Like, how do we know when it's time to try something and when it's time to say goodbye to our expectations and changes? Any thoughts around that? Like, how do you figure it out? Well, I feel like there's, I always think of, I like analogies. Okay. So hear me out on this. <laughs> Quotes, analogies, you it, like speaking yes. all my languages right now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I like to find patterns. Yeah. So, I use a strategy that I call like a camera zoom. So if you think Mm -hmm. of a camera lens, you can zoom in or you can zoom out. Mm -hmm. And I think there are a lot of moments where we need to do one or the other, or sometimes both. So sometimes we need to zoom in on the problem, meaning we Mm -hmm. need to figure out like that deeper reason that something is happening. And a lot of that comes from reflection. So Mm -hmm. going back to, you know, things that we feel like we have no control over, or maybe we have more control than we think Hmm. behavior issues or like, you know, student relationships, all of that. So a lot of times when we start to experience behavior problems, we feel like it's out of our control, whether we're trying to get admin involved and they're not supportive or the, the families aren't supportive, or we feel like it's only happening in our class. Why isn't anyone else experiencing this? And Mm. it feels like we're doing everything we can, but it's nothing is working. And that's a very like hard feeling, obviously. But if you really zoom in and kind of reflect on, well, why is this happening? And I love just keep asking that question, why, and dig deeper Mm. and deeper. You might realize that it's due to something that you're you have control over. So for example, Mm -mm. have you been inconsistent with your expectations? Like if you really take a look at it, a teacher would never do that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But we know as the year gets away from us, sometimes we pick our battles and it becomes easier just to let things slide because Mm. you don't want to deal with it in the moment. But then that tends to kind of mushroom and create this bigger problem later down the road. And so we have to have that honest reflection of what role do I play in this or what can I change? There's another quote from that man's search for meaning book. I'm mm. sorry, but it's such a good book No, I love where it. he I'm talks about. <laughs> it's like next to my desk right now. Yes. <laughs> I'm it up right yes. Now. <laughs> I ended up getting a copy of it um, when I was in Krakow, the Schindler's oh, factory yeah. is there. And so I got to visit it and in the gift shop, I'm like, what can I get that's meaningful? So I got a copy of that book there, which I just was like, that's such a cool connection. (laughs) But anyway, so there's another quote from that book about how when we can't change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. And Mm. so having that moment where we can really take a deep look and go, what 
what can I do better in order to help the situation? And I know when you feel like you've been trying everything and it's Mm. not working, it's really taking a look at those things that maybe you don't want to change because it's, Mm. it's hard to make those changes. So that's the zooming in, like taking a deeper look at the problem, but you can also zoom out. So sometimes getting additional perspectives, whether it's from a team teacher or a colleague or someone that's not even involved in education at all. I mean, Mm. bless my husband, the number of times he would hear me tell stories from teaching (laughs) or rant about things, of course, but he oftentimes offered a very unique perspective because he didn't know the students I was talking about or the colleagues I was talking about. So he could look at things very objectively and give me feedback. And that's one thing I love. Well, there's many things I love about my husband, obviously. (laughs) But one thing is he always challenges me to be a better version of myself. And sometimes that means telling me the things I don't necessarily want to hear, but need to hear. So by zooming out and looking at the bigger picture, especially by gaining an additional perspective, you can ask yourself, well, first of all, is this temporary? Like, is it even worth getting upset over if it's going to go away? So for example, the pandemic, that obviously changed education as a whole, but there were certain policies in place with teaching hybrid and, and half my classes in person, half my classes online that I didn't love, but I also knew it wasn't going to last forever. So Mm. in those situations, it's kind of like, well, grin and bear it. But Mm. asking yourself, is the juice worth the squeeze? Like it is even worth getting upset over and just being able to have those perspective shifts, I think can be very powerful. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, self-awareness and self-reflection that seems kind of built into this of, you know, I think for a lot of educators knowing when they're so far zoomed out that they do need to narrow the focus and zoom in a little bit and vice versa. What are the moments when I am beating myself up because I am trying Mm -hmm. effort after effort after effort and like there are things beyond my control that I need to separate out. Uh, you know, my my work in burnout has been kind of this, this back and forth experience of helping educators, school leaders know like when to zoom in and what are like the actual strategies a human should use in this moment. But what are the moments when we need to look at the bigger picture in the organization and some of the conditions around that, um, which isn't to say it's, easy to do that. But I think there is kind of power. And before we have our next move or before even we have our next thought, we just pause and say, like, what do I need right now? Do I need to dig deeper and learn more of the why behind this? Or do Mm -hmm. I need to step back and learn to accept things a little bit? Because you're right, there are some things and it's like, I don't need to worry about this anymore. Like, (laughs) literally, the day is over. I'm never going to relive that experience again. I'm never going to like hear that snarky comment again. Like, how much am I just like attaching myself to something beyond my control that I can't change? And I'm the one suffering rather than the one moving forward. That's a powerful insight for sure. Yeah. And going back to that, that negativity bias. Um, Mm. Again, I like to find parallels between things and with fitness being a big part of my life, I have always been very interested in like sports psychology Mm -hmm. and being able to take some of those principles. And a lot of times the psychology applies to all areas, right? Mm -hmm. I will hear from it from the lens of sports, but then being able to apply it to other areas. And when it comes to negativity and focusing on the negativity it is a natural instinct as human beings. Like from yeah. a biological evolutionary standpoint, yeah. we have been trained to look for the negative and to consider that worst case scenario because that has aided in our survival, right? right. If an animal right. has been chased by a saber-toothed tiger, for lack of better animals I can come up with in the moment, and <laughs> they survived it. That does seem to be it. like the, the one animal that <laughs> like go-to. we always go back to. It's like the go-to. I would wonder how many like cave people were actually attacked by saber-toothed tigers. Like, did that even coexist in the same timeline? But like, because that's what I use all the time too. It's hilarious. Like, poor saber-toothed I- tiger getting a bad rap. <laughs> <laughs> I think Ice Age for that. I feel like Ice Age had a lot to right? do with that. <laughs> but... When you have that experience, you then remember that because you want to be able to use that to learn from. So Mm. as humans, we are much better at learning from negative experiences than we are positive. So we tend to hone in on those. The difference is we are no longer fighting for our lives against saber-toothed tigers. (laughs) And we have these very developed prefrontal cortexes where we can reason and be able to say, okay, I can change this thinking because I realize it's no longer serving from serving me. So 
I, because when you start to talk about positivity and Mm -hmm. reflecting and gratitude and all those things, it can start to sound very woo-woo, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know how else to put it, but I am not a woo-woo person. I am a logic. I need facts. I need science. (laughs) Like That is what just meshes with my brain. And so the more I've dove into it, the more I have found, you know, studies that support it. And to me, that has gotten me on board. So Mm. I recently heard about this study where they took two different groups of people and they were telling people about a surgery and either it's success or it's fail rate. So Mm. the first group, they told them this surgery had a 70% success rate. And most of the people in the group gave a thumbs up. That was a great surgery. Group two was told this surgery had a 30% fail rate. Obviously, like that's the same, right? If it has a 70% success, it had a 30% failure. But those people in that group, most of them gave it a thumbs down. They're like, that was not a successful surgery. That's Mm -hmm. not a good surgery, which makes sense, right? If you're, if it's framed from the positive standpoint, it's that like gain frame, kind of like a glass is half full. Mm -hmm. You're going to think more positively about it versus if it's a loss frame, such as the glass is half empty. That makes sense. Here's where it got interesting. Mm. Then the second part, they went back to each of those groups. So for group one, they had told them it's a 70% success. They said it's good. They then said, okay, but that means it's a 30% fail rate. A lot of the people then changed their mind and they're like, oh, never mind. I, I don't yeah. think that was a good surgery. Whereas the second group, when they were initially told it was a 30% failure and they said, oh, that's not a good surgery, they would reframe it and say, okay, but that means 70% was successful. Most of the people did not change their mind. They still yeah. said that's not a good surgery. And so it goes to show you, if you start with the negative, it's really hard to reframe your thinking. Whereas yeah. if you start with that positive Obviously, you can still be convinced it's negative, but it at least starts you in a better place and you have a more open mindset as opposed to starting with the negative. And that's something that resonated with me in terms of when you're talking with colleagues and you're discussing all these negative things in education, because there are many, (laughs) you don't (laughs) even have to look that hard. (laughs) But when you start with that negative, it becomes very difficult to reverse the thinking. I think that's a good uh, example to start to dive into is around like colleagues and yeah. just kind of the the culture we're around because absolutely like our our exposure to negative and positive has a big impact and our awareness of what we're looking towards with our day can impact that like if I go into my classroom looking for kids to act a fool and be completely off the walls like I'm probably going to notice that at a higher rate than if I go into it looking for the kids who are are doing what we want in education and they're trying to be productive um, so all of that ab- absolutely resonates with the work I've done around just positive psychology and how it applies to to well-being in organizations. But the spot that is really tricky is cynicism because that is Mm. a major dimension of burnout. And I have often argued that, you know, that's kind of a a defense mechanism that like, I don't know any educator who goes into teaching and they're like, I want to hate this job and I want to feel negative (laughs) around my students. But it's like they come in with almost like this, optimistic hopefulness and then they get burned Mm -hmm. again and again and again by initiative that came in and went or student behavior or leadership or parents. And so they adopt this cynicism. But that's also really, really hard to move forward from. So let's take the example of if you have cynical colleagues and they have kind of given in a little bit more of that negativity bias. First of all, How much of that should we even try to influence, like zooming in versus how much do you think we should start to like outframe and just like accept and let it go? What would be your thoughts around that? That's a really good question. And I think it's something everyone can relate to because everyone right now probably has that colleague in their mind. (laughs) (laughs) And if you don't have that colleague Uh, in your mind, I have some bad news for you. You might be that guy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So... Obviously, the best chance to kind of overcome that is to be proactive as much as possible, which Mm. I understand is easier said than done. But if you know that colleague tends to be very negative, try to prevent that negativity as much as possible before it begins. Because again, it goes back to that, like whether it's a gain frame or a loss frame. So as much Mm. as possible, going into a meeting with that person or a conversation with them, try to start it out with something positive. It may still turn negative, but you have a much 
better chance of keeping it positive if it starts that way. Yeah. So being aware of those people that you need to really make an effort to be positive around because they're yeah. going to turn it negative. Yeah. So the awareness, I think, is the first step. And then I feel like it's important to share with them the information behind positivity. And like you said, like positive psychology and yeah. I feel like information is power and some Mm. people may not even be aware. So I think of myself back in high school, I was a very negative person Mm. and it wasn't something that I picked up on until, you know, I started to lose some friendships because of it. And obviously as I grew and mature as a person, I was able to reflect more and realized I was a very negative person and I would just always look for the the downside of things. It, again, mm. it's a negativity bias. Oh, yeah. And a lot of that was, you know, influenced on me from like my parents. Bless my mom, love her so much. But in order to protect <laughs> me, if I would share something like, hey mom, I got this great opportunity, her mind went to all the things that could go wrong because yeah. she wanted to protect me from like that disappointment, but that rubbed off on me. And I started to realize I didn't want to be that person. And that's when I started to make the choice to be more positive, but it wasn't until I had the information surrounding like, Hey, it does actually work. And there are studies that yeah. support it and all of that. And I think some people are just not aware of that. So being willing to share that information. And it can be done in a very casual way. If you're going to start a meeting, Hey, I I heard about this study the other day and you just share it with them. Mm. Ultimately their choices are out of your control. Yeah. And you have to keep that in mind. You can share the information all day, but if they don't choose to see it that way or have a different perspective, it's fine. You did your due diligence. You shared the information with them. So I think being aware of the patterns and Mm sharing the information, and then ultimately having some kind of a strategy to be able to combat that negativity in a way that's going to best serve you. So if I'm dealing with someone that's very negative, I know I have kind of a go-to like phrase where I'm going to validate their feelings because Mm -hmm. they're allowed to to, you know, their feelings are are just that their feelings. It's not always something we have control over, but then I'm going to kind of redirect them a little bit and maybe it's to something entirely different or maybe it's trying to redirect them to the positive. It depends on the person. But for example, if one of my team teachers is coming to me to complain about a student's misbehavior in their room, Mm -hmm. I might say, oh, that sounds really tough. Did you hear about how they won their football game over the weekend? Like Mm. just trying to reframe it in a different way. And it may work. It may not. You kind of have to figure out what works for different people. But I also am a big believer in if you need to spend less time around the per- that person as much as possible. I know it's hard with <laughs> right. colleagues, but you can distance yourself. You can just say, yeah. you know, unfortunately, like, I, I don't think I'm in the place to have this conversation right now. So I'm going to yeah. see myself out, you know? Yeah. I think that what's coming to mind for me in that kind of zooming in where I do want to try to give some effort and I want to try to give some influence is still potentially trying to detach my emotional investment in it and approach it almost like as a scientist of like, I'm yeah. just going to experiment with something or I'm just going to like put some information out there and rather than worrying about it going in the direction I want it to or not, like I'm just going to try to detach and just see what happens next. And that kind of curiosity and pursuit of just experimentation, I think in the moments that I've been really frustrated, that has helped me just kind of unlock a little bit. Um, similarly, like one of my favorite questions when a, a colleague or someone is, is being negative or venting about something is, is trying to hear them and let them process. But then a lot, oftentimes just posing like, so what's your next move? Or so what are we going to do about it? Um, What could we try? Because for me, like I need something. And then on the flip side, I think you brought up the idea of boundaries of knowing if I don't, if this isn't helping me move forward and this isn't allowing me to have uh, the positive direction that I want to, where can I set those boundaries and structures? Mm-hmm. I don't know if I've shared this on previous episodes of a podcast, but um, I had a, a colleague who was like the most cynical person I know. He's also highly intelligent, and but he kind of came from this place even in our department meetings of like, well, there's not a lot we can do. And he would start to shut things down. And you know, it took quite a few years, but I got to a comfort point where I actually had to sit down and have a conversation 
conversation with him of like, this isn't helping me. Like, I need you to yeah. know that I can't be your person to vent about what's going to go wrong and what's going to be negative because that isn't what allows me to move forward. And it was one of those conversations where my heart is beating. Like, I don't know how he's going to take this, but it was an, uh, an important boundary of I know what I need. And I'm not going to try to change you. And I don't expect that external condition to go my way, but I'm at least going to take control over my life and my boundaries of what I need to move forward. And so whether we're zooming in or zooming out, I think that awareness and, and taking those steps can be really, really important. Yeah. And setting boundaries is one of those things. Again, it always sounds easier said than done. <laughs> right. And I think a lot of us have a lot of fear around setting boundaries because yeah. we tend to be people pleasers and we don't yeah. want to ostracize or alienate ourselves. We don't want people to be disappointed in us. But in almost every situation that I can think of from my experience where someone set a boundary with me, I never looked at them in any worse way. If anything, yeah. I had more respect for them for being able to do that. And going off of that with those conversations that are difficult to have where you're very open with someone about, hey, here's here's how your behaviors or your words or actions are affecting me and here's what I need moving forward. I think that can be very powerful. And I think back to when I was student teaching, I had a conversation with one of my mentor teachers that mm -hmm. really opened my eyes to something and it has stuck with me. I, and I think this comes from like working out and lifting weights. When I am in the gym, I am, I probably, I have that RBF, like Google it if you don't know what I'm talking about. Okay. And even though I'm a very nice person, I swear, yeah. but when I am in, when I am focused, my face <laughs> is cold. And I didn't realize that there were times when I was walking around the school and I uh, kind of had that face, mostly because I was caught up in my own brain of yeah. all the things I need to do. And I was processing and I didn't realize that my face was you know, indicative yeah. of that. And my coworker kind of had this conversation where she's like, just so you know, like you're not very friendly in the hallways. And she explained to me how that could impact people. And especially as I'm trying to get a job and I'm trying to make those connections with schools and people, you never know who knows who. And mm. even though it was a difficult conversation to have, I didn't feel warm and fuzzy after it was mm. what I needed to hear in that moment. And so sometimes being able to have that um, honest conversation with a coworker and say, hey, I've noticed in our meetings, you are very negative. Here, here's how it's impacting me or how it's impacting our team. Again, what can we do about it? Having that yeah. solution-focused mindset instead of dwelling on problems, looking at it from the perspective of what can we do to change it? It may not be much, but even if it's just our attitude or questioning someone or having a conversation, like what are those things that we can do? Because there is always something. Yeah, for sure. There is the element of hope, I think, that mm -hmm. is kind of built within this of, you know, I think a lot of times we get cynical because we've lost some hope of moving forward. Mm -hmm. and, and that comes back to this idea of negativity bias and sometimes tunnel vision of what needs to happen. And I think for a lot of people, once we recognize that of, of trying to bring it back to some form of action I can take that allows me to feel hopeful that either I can still move forward within these contexts or conditions, or I know what to do to get out of those contexts or conditions is kind of built within a lot of this is it's okay to know that negative things exist. So there's a lot beyond our control, but never give up that sense of hope or action within our world. Um, th these have been so, so insightful to kind of look at specific examples of where that emerged just because I'm so, so many, I'm sure so many educators are like, yep, been there. Yep. Been there before. Um, and even though I could nerd out with you for a long, long time, we're going to shift into the final section of our podcast that I call statements. So I'm going to give you three statements. When I give you the statement, your options are to strongly agree, agree, disagree, or strongly disagree with that statement. And then we'll elaborate a little bit more around them. Sound good? Okay. Yes. Cool. Your, your first statement has nothing to do with our topic. Well, it might actually, um, but it does have to do a little bit with traveling. So just to pick your brain, here's your first statement. The window seat is the best seat on an airplane. <laughs> Strongly agree. I am team window seat. Are you? But okay. can I explain? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so typically, Again, bless my husband. When we travel, we sit next to each other, obviously, on the plane. Mm. And because I am team window seat, that means he is 
he by default gets the middle seat <laughs> unless he wants to abandon me altogether, which he has done. But we were having this conversation about what each seat gets. Okay. Mm. So the aisle seat, you get the convenience of being able to get up and easily access the aisle and go yeah. to the bathroom, yeah. which you would think I would want because I go to the bathroom a lot. I drink yeah. like a gallon of water a day. <laughs> but for whatever reason, when I am on a plane, my body knows like it's business time. We're not, we're not getting up. Okay. <laughs> when I flew back, we flew from London to Austin. It was a 10 hour flight. Ooh. I did not leave my seat at all. Ooh. So I don't know how I did it. Obviously I was severely dehydrated, <laughs> but going back to the aisle seat, you get the convenience of the aisle and you yeah. get the left armrest or the right armrest, whichever one is next to the aisle. Yeah. The window seat, you get the armrest that is next to the window. You obviously get control of the window. So you get to choose whether it is up or down and then you can kind of lean on the window. And so for long flights, I like to be able to lean on the window yeah. and be able to like take a nap. I don't feel like I need the aisle cause I have short legs, so I don't yeah. need to stretch yeah. out my legs. The middle seat, and this is where a lot of people, I feel like, don't agree. The well, uh, middle this is seat, where I was curious. Like, what does the middle seat get? Does it get anything? The middle seat gets both armrests on either side. And mm. the reason this came up is because my husband suckered me into taking the middle seat for one of the flights. He's like, can I please just have like the, the it was the, actually the aisle <laughs> seat. And I said, fine, I'll take the middle. So I took the middle and then I got bothered because the gentleman in the window seat took my right armrest. And I'm like, no, sir, like that is my armrest because yeah. I am stuck in the middle. So I get both armrests. It's just a theory that I have, but I did think you, more people need to know about it. Did you do it. The, the inside elbow thing where like you slid your elbow underneath his to try to, to bonk his arm off of there? I didn't, but at one moment he like reached for something and I took that armrest so fast. Yeah. <laughs> I secured it. I was like, Claim I am not it. moving. <laughs> Eminent domain right here. I love, like, that's why when I was first coming up with a statement, I'm like, this doesn't have anything to do with the topic. But now that we're talking about it, like there is this element of like what's within <laughs> our control and what's without our control because I am like hardcore team aisle seat because I do have to pee so much. And I like get anxious if I'm in the middle or the seat. And maybe it's because I don't like conflict, but I've had moments where I've had to pee so bad. And I'm just sitting there like, I can't ask them to get up. They're going to be so mad at me. Like, I'm just going to sit here and deal with it. And so from this point forward, it's like, give me the aisle seat. So I at least have the control and freedom to pee when I have to pee. <laughs> That's I, I get that. I relate to that. <laughs> I think for me, First of all, I will try to time it. So mm. on the flights there, there was, bless her, little old lady who was in the, the aisle seat. Mm. And whenever she would get up, I'm like, it's mm -hmm. my time. I'm going to go. And so I consider it a challenge in my mind to wait <laughs> until those moments. But I had a situation where a guy, he was coming for the middle seat. I'd already taken, I think it was the aisle seat because all the window seats were taken. And he was very tall. And so I said, Michelle, you're going to be a good person. It was Southwest. So we didn't have assigned seats. I said, here, sir, like you can take the aisle. I'll scoot over to the middle. And you know, he thanked me, but he hmm. then proceeded to put his legs under my like section of the seat in front of me mm. and take the armrest. And I was like, what? no, <laughs> we have gone too far. It's just interesting to hear how different people yeah. look at that situation. You know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> there should be like uh etiquette classes you have to take of just like yes. understanding the protocol because there's a lot of frustration there. Okay. <laughs> this, yes. this is like a whole new topic that we are starting to explore is the dynamics of airline seating. Um, here's your next statement though. It's better to try and fail than to accept you don't have control. Ooh, strongly agree. And it pains me to mm. say that as I am a self-proclaimed perfectionist. And I know a lot of people say that. <laughs> And I'm sorry, but I know this about myself. I really, really struggle with failure. It is not something mm. I I enjoy accepting. I don't cope well with it. Mm. But as I have matured and grown and reflected, I have realized you have to you have to just risk it for the biscuit. I tell myself mm. that all the time too. And honestly, sports and powerlifting have helped me with that a lot because oh, yeah. there have been a lot of moments where I've had to embrace like I might fail. If it's a really heavy lift going into it, I'm always like, okay, what's the worst that happens? If I fail this lift, it, what 
what's the worst that happens? I fail it. Like it's Mm. not the end of the world. And I've had to grow in that mindset. And from that, I've had some of my best moments where I ended up succeeding when I didn't think I would. And I think that that is really, really Mm. powerful and it builds your confidence. But I couldn't have known that if I didn't embrace the possibility of failure and not having control over the situation. So Mm. as much as I don't enjoy those moments, I have learned that they have helped me grow as a person and are therefore necessary. Mm, yeah, it's kind of interesting, like the, the surprise moments where we do more than we uh, thought we could. Um, yeah. there. I think there's also kind of like this this loophole within that statement potentially of like, we always have control over at least our thinking and our thoughts. And even yes. though I might not be able to control others, I can always still try to influence. I can still always try to shift where I'm at. Of, um, yeah, I'm on that team as well of like, you got to try something to keep that sense of hope or to at least shift our own mindset or to at least explore ideas and, and test it out and try it out um, from that curiosity lens is, is I think, really, really friggin' important. And I hope that educators continue to focus on that no matter what the challenging circumstance. Now, your last statement is society as a whole is getting less and less resilient. Ooh. I I feel bad saying strongly agree for all of them, but I think I would say strongly agree as well. Mm. I, and again, it's hard to say out loud. It's hard to like admit because I'm a part of this, right? Mm. But I feel like just with all of the instant gratification Mm. and the convenience of so many things, a lot of of the younger generations, I'm going to say like 40 and under, hmm. we we are not willing to struggle as much as maybe previous generations hmm. had to. I feel like now any small inconvenience, we mm-hmm. we act as if it's traumatic. And it's like, no, like if that's just a minor inconvenience. Right, and yeah. After visiting Auschwitz, one of the things my husband and I both kind of vowed to each other is we're going to hold each other accountable for just complaining less in general mm. because you you see things like that that people yeah. endured and you're like, how could I complain about some of the things that I complain about? And yeah. again, Man's Search for Meaning in that book, If for anyone listening who hasn't read it, so Victory Frankel, he is a Holocaust survivor. He Mm -hmm. passed away in 1997, but he writes about how he maintained hope in obviously a very otherwise hopeless situation. And I just feel like more people, I don't know, maybe it goes back to that negativity and just honing in on that, but people don't see the bigger picture and aren't willing to, to really to struggle and realize like there is meaning behind that struggle. And even the ability to struggle and come out on the other side is, is a skill almost. And I don't think a lot of people have that anymore. Yeah. As much as I hate to say that. No, I I am with you again on this one. I think that I think back to a lot of the students I was teaching in like the past few years, high school students, like I could noticeably see with a lot of the activities I did and lessons I did that they were becoming more and more risk averse where Mm -hmm. they wouldn't even try. Like I had a student come up to me like, and she's like, you, you can't call on me in class anymore. I was like, what do you mean? She's like, I have, I have high anxiety. Like you can't call on me. And, you know, I'm all, I totally understand the need for like modifications and and adjustments to uh, a teacher's protocol, but it was like, one of those moments of like, I always give my students a chance to like pair share and try out some ideas. Like I always know ahead of time, I'm not one of those like gotcha cold call sort of people, but it was like just a visible moment of like, this student is going to struggle getting into college and getting into these experiences if they don't learn some skills when they're uncertain or they have to try something else of like how to still move forward and persevere. And I noticed just more and more of that across my students and more intensity around it. So they're, yeah, whether it is negativity bias, whether it is just kind of being in a society where like we do have a lot of convenience and things are easy and we don't get tested that it does seem like we need the hope, but we also need the action step to push into difficult things sometimes to strengthen that hope and ability for sure. Yeah. Mm. And going off of that, 
going to society. I think that is, I don't want to say it's anyone's fault that we are Mm, like this. It's more of, it's been a progression. And I think it's that realization of here's how that instant gratification and those conveniences, Mm. how it is negatively affecting us and being able to become aware of that and make changes. Because again, with students and, and the anxiety, a lot of that has to do with the fast paced society, especially here in the U S because I don't think it's that way everywhere. And it's almost like those have been coping mechanisms that we have developed in order to try to fit into into society. And that's ultimately, we all just want to fit it. We all want to feel like we belong. And so as society becomes more and more fast paced, we feel these pressures. And so we develop these anxieties as a way to cope with those pressures. Mm And so it has all just kind of compounded over time. And I think it's important that we realize here are the effects and we need to start making some changes because it's, we're not headed in a good direction. And so like you said, it's being able to take action. Yeah. And that often sounds like teaching (laughs) all all the challenges and societal changes and conditions and the needs for like gratification and like still maintaining our hope within that and trying to move forward. Um, Well, this has been a a very hopeful conversation for me to to have another human being out there that I, I really respect and admire who's helping other people realize the actions that they can take, even in the most challenging moments or actions to move forward and try things out. So um, I thank you not only for carving out some time and, you know, putting the weights down for a little bit so you could come have a <laughs> chat with us. Um, but thank you for the work you do and thank you for who you are. All right. Happy hour, hodgepodge. Let's launch into this year with a sense of what we can control and what we can influence to make this an impactful year. Now, as I say all the time in my professional development, I cannot guarantee this year is going to get any easier. It's probably going to be really freaking hard. But what I can guarantee is that we can learn not only from other educators or psychiatrists like Viktor Frankl, but just from the experience of life of what happens when we accept the things beyond our control, but we put our power in our personal choices. Now, one of my favorite frameworks to use to not only know whether we're going internal or external, but to also move forward is the acronym BEG vs. ACT. Here's the thing, when people go into external locus of control, they typically have one of three behaviors. The B stands for blame, finger pointing, putting all the onus into someone else's court. E is excuse, they make excuses or justifications. Oftentimes it sounds like, well, it's okay that I blank because blah, like it's okay that I don't put a lot of work into my job because other people aren't either. The last one is to give up. Sometimes we give up by not even trying to begin with or we give up when things get difficult. I'm a believer that external locus control is a defense mechanism. Like it makes sense that we have given a lot of our power and a lot of our influence and we've tried and we've got burned and we've failed and had challenges. And so it's easy to revert to that phase, especially if we're in a realm of exhaustion, cynicism and inefficacy. But I'm also a believer that the only way to get yourself out of that and to move forward with dignity, with power, is to act instead of beg. Act, I refer to as a process of number one, accept the things within my control and accept the things beyond my control. Like I accept that I'm not gonna be able to control what happens to a student out in the hallway outside my classroom, but when they enter my space, my classroom, I get to influence what their experience is like. So we have to begin by accepting our choices, our influence, what we can and cannot control. Now the C in our acronym of ACT stands for create options. What are my options? What can I try? There isn't just one thing I can try. There are typically multiple things. So maybe I begin brainstorming first of what are three options I can try, and then I narrow it down. And then I'm gonna take action. That's what the T stands for. And now it's an experiment mode. I'm gonna try it. I might fail, it might not work, but at least I have other options to turn to. Now this process of trying things and moving forward and accepting control is critical to adapting and habituating an internal locus of control. So that is your loan recommendation, your homework, home fun for this week and beyond is to notice when you are begging for change and notice when you are acting for change and look for those moments to shift into act mode. No matter what comes your way in education, you can handle it 
but it might take some work, some effort in focusing on those choices. With that, we're gonna close this one out. Please be sure to follow on Instagram at Chase Milky, where I'm gonna be posting the statements from today's episode to give you a chance to respond to. Feel free to like, subscribe, spread the word so we can keep spreading the good work that we are attempting to do here at Educator Happy Hour. And I'm going to see you in two weeks. We're going to start launching this every other week in part because I want to give the highest quality I can and in part because my schedule demands it with a three-year-old to tend to and teaching and speaking, writing and all this work. I really want to make sure that I'm practicing what I preach, which is this healthy work-life balance. I'll see you in a couple weeks for our next installment of Educator Happy Hour. Special thanks again to our sponsor, TYS Speakers. If you want to inspire and motivate your staff or students to positive action, then head over to tysspeakers.com to browse a list of carefully vetted speakers and professional development leaders whose messages are engaging, evidence-based, and life-changing. Read testimonials, watch demo videos, and find a speaker that can help take your school or organization to the next level tysspeakers.com.